Patrick Tommaso is back on the show. And um, what what's the best way to describe you, Patrick? I mean, I always think of you as a professional tweeter, um, which is <laughs> the, the the strangest career path ever. Like your rise to fame is what nobody else seems to do of Twitter first and, and then sort of YouTube second. But like, yeah, that is kind um, of weird. I don't, I don't really, I, have, I guess I haven't reflected on, yeah, I appreciate you having me. I haven't really reflected on the Twitter <laughs> side of things. It's one of those things where like Elijah Wood followed me recently and that's when things started to like sink in that it was kind of whack. Like, cool. like it was yeah, like, cool. And here's the interesting thing. What happens when, when you start to like get into uh, whatever, it's not even, it's not even a, a huge amount of followers, but once you cross that like 10,000, you start to, the worst thing you could possibly do with Twitter is start to second guess your tweets. Cause I think what gets you to that point is just being the most authentically yourself at some point. You know what I mean? So I find that now, and I, I don't know how you feel about even this with YouTube, like as I'm about to hit 50 K on YouTube, I'm like getting self-conscious about stuff, which I don't, I don't usually am that way. But when things become like that gravitas sort of kicks in of the audience, it's hard not to sit back and be like, whoa, okay, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people here that are seeing this and like, who, what is the potential implications of the things that I'm saying? And, you know, are everyone, is everyone taking me seriously? Should they be? Am I joking? Should I be serious? All that kind of stuff. But yeah, I guess is like, Elijah in a, would in get a, unfollow me. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff like that. hundred percent where you're like, like, but for me, like what I just keep telling myself is like, don't, don't think about it. Cause like the reason you got yeah. to these places and these levels is because you just said what you want to say and that's what you believe in. Right. So yeah, professional tweeter, uh, trying my hardest not to be a YouTuber. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I no, mean, mostly I, like, yeah. Well, just to, the, to what you're saying about the, um, you know, being more nervous with more success is 100% the case. Um, and I, yeah. t- for me, it's been d- dependent on the platform. Uh, Twitter, I still feel the most comfortable, even though, you know, I've, yeah. I've grown, but not, maybe it's because I haven't grown as much. So it still feels like anybody most people following me on Twitter still know me. Like they have a roughly decent idea of who I am. And I kind of feel like, I don't know, I can trust them with my thoughts or something. Like I don't have to worry about them misjudging me. And on, I mean, I know that on YouTube, if I have a a video that like pops and the mainstream public sees it, they're going to be, they're going to be the douchebags in the comments. So like, yeah. uh, yeah, And I don't get that on Twitter. Totally. And like, that's another thing where like, which is funny is because when I do find myself, I don't know, putting on like YouTube Patrick, which I, which I call it. Like, it's like, I, I've become this version of myself for YouTube. But I think to some extent, I think all of us do it where there's like this, cause I've, I've met a lot of, like I've met you, I've met a lot of people outside of YouTube and we have like a bit of a split personality of like who we are in a video and who we are in real life. There's obviously parts of both sides, but I found when I am as maybe as close as I am on Twitter in a YouTube video, I, I actually find the videos perform better. Right. But then I'm, I'm fighting myself. Cause I'm like, is that too, is it, are people not going to take it seriously? Right. Like I did the Apple cloth uh, review. Right. And that's the one that ends up on like New York times and stuff. And I'm like, did that, is that the thing I wanted to get emails from these people being like, is I saw you in legacy? the New York times. Like, is this my legacy? Yeah. And yeah. you know, not to get too deep about it, but like, that is something I'm thinking about a lot with YouTube. I'm like, is this really what, I want to do is this who I want to be known for reviewing cameras and laptops I'm like kind of in that like crisis mode right now because I think I'm on the eve of 50,000 and that feels like a big number and and it feels like it has some merit and before I think I always just sort of treated YouTube as like a joke side hobby thing where I'm just seeing let's just see what happens like no no plan no real strategy let's just whatever I'm interested in at that time and you know the strategy isolated video by by video but now I'm like, oh, wow, there's like a thing here. Like there's a lot of people watching this stuff. And like, what are the implications of that for other things that I might want to do in my life, in my career? If I want to do more narrative filmmaking and things like that, like there's this legacy of like YouTube tech reviews and, and stuff. Like, is that me? I don't I don't entirely know. I, I'm, I can't, obviously can't answer it in this 
in this conversation, but it's definitely something that's on my mind. And I think it happens to a lot of YouTubers just in the conversations that I've been having with a lot of people where we start to think about like, I'm also getting older. I look super young, but like I'm 32 coming on 33. So it's like, I'm thinking a lot super more old. of like the long term. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I'm not like a, a, a young 20 year old vlogger anymore or anything like that. You know what I mean? So it's like, there's a little bit more of what I'm thinking about what truly makes me happy creatively. And I'm not entirely sure if YouTube is that, right? So that's, I mean, this is turning into well, therapy yeah, I, for me, right? <laughs> I don't think there's any generic advice with this of like, oh, everybody no. you'll everybody will find that Twitter allows them to be the true version of themselves because I, I know yeah. that's not true. Most people can't figure out what to do with Twitter, which I, I want to talk about Twitter a little bit as a, as a business after this. So remind me, but but um, yeah, most people just like they, they sign up, they follow a couple people and they don't know what to do after that. So uh, you know, this is not universal advice at all, even though it seems to work for, for the two of us. And it can be, and it can be discouraging too, right? Yeah, totally. Like, well, yeah. It's just like shouting into the void. But the one that totally. I found that I closed down the most on and, and lost the most confidence is Instagram, which yeah. I'm supposed to, like I, I probably post, you know, I do, I post more stories than feed photos. But it was very much, it, there is this feeling of like, you know, I identify as a photographer, like this is what I've done for work for a long time. And I look at how good so many amateur photographers are on Instagram. I'm like, oh man, this, this makes it hard to post. <laughs> like, I just don't know what to put up there anymore. And that's, you know, there, it's, it's easy to find that mental barrier in any platform. Even if you previously enjoyed it, it can be challenging to keep that sense of creative freedom moving forward. Unfortunately, I think, I think I have a decent balance of it on YouTube. Like I know how I want to approach it, but you know, and I always say on this podcast, I, I feel like the podcast is where I can also be the most open and the most me because long form helps for that. The fact that there's no, like the, on YouTube, it's that condensed form factor. Like you need to get your whole point out in 10 minutes and you can't forget anything. So you need to be more organized and more controlled. Um, so I feel like it's, you know, it's harder to, to really be as, as sort of openly you and people don't get to know you as much as um, more free flowing formats. Yeah. Just before I talk more about Instagram, and Facebook stuff, I, I feel like I do the Dieter Bond from Verge uh, disclosure thing. My partner, so my girlfriend actually does work at Meta. So for whatever that means, I, I don't know any inside secrets or like that, but it's one of those things now, like oh, as our cool. Vergecast reference. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, she does work at Facebook at Meta. So no biases. I don't use Facebook. I'm very rarely on Instagram too, for a lot of the same reasons that I think like, yeah, like you, you mentioned, like for me, Instagram just turned into this, like, I don't know. It just, it, it lost its coolness for me. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't feel like it's a cool place to be. And it, it could be because we're getting older and we were with it when it first came out. And so when you age up with something like that, it's easy just to get bored with it. Like I get bored with iPhones. It's like, not that I need the new one every year, but I get bored with the tool, right? Like I, sometimes I just need something new to be creatively inspired. And currently Instagram just doesn't creatively inspire me. And I also find that from a photography standpoint, I've found way more success in people finding my work and my talent through Twitter. Like I kind of built Twitter on conversation and, you know, jokes and stuff like that in my personality, but I've found an audience there too, with like my art and my creativity, which I think is interesting that I don't, I don't think I ever really found on, on Instagram. Right. And even though I have more followers on Instagram, like I find way more engagement and community in the photography space within Twitter. And, you know, I've had like actual conversations with engineers and stuff at Twitter about the back end and like quality and all that kind of stuff. I've been in like, like think groups and stuff like that to make it look nicer, make it look better. And I do think they've really listened 
to us a lot. And like from a quality standpoint, just in terms of like what you can post there and how good things look, still a lot of work to be done on the video side. But for me, it just feels like a community and a platform that fosters us a little bit better than Instagram, which I think Instagram is going way too far into e-com and trying to be a TikTok competitor, which is a whole other conversation. But if we're just talking like I'm a photographer, personally speaking, like, you know, I do a lot of social content for clients. And, and of course, Instagram is a big part of that content that we create. Personally, for me, though, like it hasn't really impacted my business the more I post or the, the less I post. Right. So uh, I would actually like, as an advice thing, I would say, like, if you're doing Instagram, like just start trying to get into the Twitter side of photography, too, because that community will build you up a lot faster, in my opinion, uh, than the capacity yeah, of think- Instagram at this point. Right. I think if anybody's afraid of getting started with Twitter, you could just start off by just treat it like Instagram. Totally. What you, Instagram used to be because it's becoming yeah, less and less it used to be. Now. It really is. Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, it's TikTok. But um, if you just post your photos there, just post high resolution because they're going to look way better than they do on Instagram. You know, like yeah. Twitter's also, it's sort of filling the gap of what um, like Flickr used to be of like, you can see the real quality. You can really zoom in all the way. And, and we just haven't had anything that's doing that since Instagram really took over. Um, but uh, so in a slightly more news side of things, you know, Jack Dorsey stepped down. Um, yep. Who knows how voluntary it really was. But uh, <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a little nervous. And then I'd love to hear what you think about it because yeah. you spend more time on there than I do. The reason <laughs> makes sense from, like, from Twitter shareholders. I totally get why there would be a desire to finally make some money because for all of the cultural totally. impact that, Twitter has, which is enormous, like they are, that's where the headlines are coming from. You know, as much as regular people may feel like they don't use Twitter personally, they are reading the results of tweets every single day in whatever journalism path they they get their news in because the journalists are all on Twitter. So it's, you know, it's where everything is happening. And same with YouTubers. I mean, it's sort of, it's like the chat room of YouTubers, I feel like. So there's always so much happening there. And I am definitely worried that if the goal is to now make Twitter more profitable, which it's always struggled to be, and I, I kind of understand why, I'm not totally sure that's going to be great for the users. I, I don't know. Yeah, are, I are you I, nervous about it? Or do you feel fine? Like, what do you uh, think? I feel okay about it now, but I think we're already starting to see a lot of the implications of it even before Jack stepped down. I think Twitter Blue was an interesting concept. I also think that ads have really kicked in a lot more in feed, if you haven't noticed, like in replies specifically, in, in the threaded replies I'm seeing, I've, I've actually like tweeted about how bad it's gotten. And so, look, I'm all for the service being free and just like any other thing, if they got to pay for it with ads, that's fine. But at least give me the option to opt out of these those ads. Like I've been a YouTube premium you know, subscriber for years now. Like I don't think I could ever really go back. And I feel like Twitter Blue is an odd answer because it doesn't remove the ads, right? So it adds all these kind of whatever features and stuff like that, that I'm sure a lot of people get used out of. I actually do like the undo button and stuff like that. But for me, it's like, if I'm going to pay the three bucks a month, I'll pay five bucks a month if I want just to not see those ads. Because there was for a long time, like it wasn't that bad. Like uh, you would go on Twitter and yeah, every once in a while you would see an ad here and there, but it was never as obtrusive as Instagram or YouTube, right? It was like, it was very passive. And that's probably why they were so successful, but it's probably why they were never, never making money either. Right. So I I, think frequency is, is a concern, right? They do a bad job of pre-roll as well uh, for, totally. for their video ads because they try to do it the same way that YouTube does. And yeah. there's only a few people I follow that seem to have monetization enabled. It's very rare, even out of like big yeah. creators. I can only think of like two or three that that have ads in their videos. 
but I never end up seeing their videos. Cause like the way I no. interact with Twitter is I'm scrolling through and I see something start to play. I pause for a moment to decide if I'm going to watch it. And I realize it's an ad. I maybe, maybe I watch for another one second. I'm like, am I going to wait through this? And I'm like, you know what? No, I'm not. I, like, I have no idea what this content is. I have it. You, you don't have the chance to, to decide if you want to watch the content or not. And you're already spending just as long watching an ad. So I just keep scrolling. And I think it's more effective on Instagram where um, you, the, the ads are just in between, right? Like, so if the ad is engaging enough, you might just watch it as content, but it's not preventing you from seeing real content. And actually, I mean, disclaimer, I still don't have ads on Instagram, so I don't actually know what that experience is like. But uh, Yeah, no, the only thing, the only, like also... Yeah. Also, because we're in Canada, like our monetization is usually pretty, pretty behind on on a lot of stuff too. Like TikTok's still rough for us and whatnot. Um, I don't think I don't think the this whole CEO thing. Like, I don't think it can actually fundamentally change the value of Twitter's core. But it, I mean, it does have the potential to ruin the experience. But from what I understand, the gentleman that's taking over, like he's been with Twitter for a long time and started as like an engineer, yeah, right? CT- and, and CTO just before this. CTO before that and then an engineer like that apparently was like I was listening to a thing on the Washington Post podcast where he was like a big you know part of like making sure the site didn't cr- if you don't remember like the the Twitter blue whale was a big thing where it would <laughs> oh, just I'll like never forget it would crash a lot yeah apparently he was like monumental in like that never happening again right so I think he understands experience being important and I obviously can't speak from not because I don't know too too much about all of it but I'm optimistic that it would be you'd have to really want to ruin Twitter <laughs> to, to make it bad because Twitter is always at the mercy of the users to an extent. Like we really decide how, how that platform sort of goes forward. Whereas something like Facebook, I feel like they're like way, way more cool with like, we're just going to redesign the whole thing and whatever you, if you don't care too bad. Right. Whereas Twitter has been very gradually adding little flavor spice here and there with new things. But the core of it is as simple as it's been since it really first came out. Like, yeah, they'll add a little bit more characters to your tweet, but the level playing field of, you know, we all have the same sort of compose button, I think is really interesting about Twitter. And as long as they don't really mess with that too, too much, it's fine. Add spaces, add some audio components here and there. But the core does. I don't think the core is really changing much at this point. Right. Yeah. At this point. I just hope it stays that way. Yeah. Um, I have a, a not that interesting anecdote about the speaking of the fail whale and, and also yeah. the formation of Twitter. So I was at iStock Photo when that started and I was good friends with the guy that is the designer of the initial Twitter bird because the, the funny thing about both that bird and the fail whale is they were stock illustrations from iStock. So they had just oh, licensed them like, and, and it became yeah, iconic, yeah. right? It became their totally. design and especially the bird they afterwards just re-illustrated into their own logo, but it was just a stock bird illustration at first. Um, and anyway, yeah, so Simon Oxley's the creator and does not get the credit for it because it was, it was sort of stock and then they, they just took it from there. But um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's both weird how far we've come and how not not far we've come because it's yeah the other thing is like the other the thing that like for context that i usually tell a lot of people too that think when people think like twitter's the end all be all but you gotta like in terms of users like twitter's a small country Mm. on a globe right it's 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 like we're we're very like twitter's a small monthly user base compared to facebook or even youtube and stuff like that right so that's i'm sure growth is going to be a huge thing for them especially if they're answering to shareholders and all that kind of stuff so that will be interesting i don't think advertising's necessarily always the answer if you look at like a take a page out of Netflix or something like that, like subscriber growth is always the goal, right? They're, they're, they're investing millions and billions into content and like they'll take losses for years. Like if I'm not mistaken, they take losses most of the time, right? 
And but they're building audience, they're building audience, they're building audience. And it just doesn't feel like Twitter's really had that investment growth period yet. I mean, maybe that's what's coming. What that looks like, I have absolutely no idea. But I think things like making the platform better for people to create on is something that will bring more of us there. And if we are creating more there, it'll bring more of an audience there. So if they go at it from not necessarily like solving the advertising problem first, but solving the consumption problem first of like getting more eyeballs on stuff that we're making there. And it's not just all of us sort of like, like you said, how Twitter's like a discord chat for creators and stuff. I think it is that for almost every niche. If you're into cars, I'm sure car Twitter is this sort of like just, you know, solo kind of group chat for those people. But like, how do you bring it beyond that outside of just politics? Right? Yeah, no, I, the, the, the thing that their biggest problem is, which I, I know the investors don't, they think, yeah, that it's like ads first is where they need to yeah. first fix where your income is coming from. But the real bigger problem is like normal people just don't understand. I mean, it's what I was saying earlier. Like I, my personal friends in real life, almost none of them are on Twitter. And if they are, exactly, it's very yeah. casually. It's not, they don't really participate. Totally. They just occasionally look at it, but almost zero normal people I know are. But I do want to say that anybody that is an, a creator or aspiring creator or just like wants to be part of broader online communities. Like I, I know some people that like take a while to sign up because they don't get it. Just, yeah. just dive in. It is so worth just being present there. And it's how I've made all the connections that I have to other creators and the Absolutely. difference between being in Twitter and not being in Twitter is like, you know, just being left out. Like you don't, you totally, don't know yeah. what you're missing if you're not hanging out there, but by being there, you have so much more understanding of what's going on in whatever your niche happens to be, um, you know, especially in terms of like photography and video production, stuff like that. Um, so yeah, strong, strongly. It's really, yeah. It's, um, it's the, it's the networking conference for all of us every day, right? It's like the conversations that you can have with, and, and that's the thing that level playing field is so interesting to me where it's like, you could talk to your favorite celebrity or you can talk to, you know, you can find whoever you could talk to another YouTuber. Like there's no, there's no like scale in terms of who's going to answer you, who's going to have a conversation mm -hmm. with you. And that it's hard to replicate that anywhere else. And that is the meal ticket, in my opinion, with Twitter is that you, the level playing field. I just love that we all have that same compose button where is YouTube. It's like, what camera do you have? What lighting setup? What is your script? What is, there's like so many variables to that for someone to try and be daunted and like with barriers. Right. Whereas with someone with Twitter, if you're watching, it's just like start tweeting, start. You have a joke. Start with a joke. You have cool photos. Post those. And, I, you know, if you're at it enough, you will find that audience, engage with other people, communicate with them, all that kind of stuff. Jump on trends, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it just seems like it's a slow growth. I will say it takes a long time to, to grow an account there, but I do think it's the payoff is, is immense uh, for being there. This episode is brought to you by privacy.com. We've all had those moments where we suddenly feel a little vulnerable with how much of our data is just floating around on the internet. I remember when my iPhone was stolen, I was suddenly very sensitive to it and I wanted to make sure everything was secure. Privacy is a tool that makes it easy to manage your financial life online while keeping your most important information secure. By getting virtual numbers, privacy masks your bank information so you never have to worry about giving it out to people you don't know online. A great example is every time you sign up for any service, you are kind of trusting that they will never get hacked. And even if they're a really reputable business, there's no guarantee. These things do happen. And then all of a sudden, whatever you've put into their system might be available in other systems. So if you use privacy, then you're taking back control of your payments. So you can decide who can charge your card, how much and how often, and you can close cards at any time. 
Plus, you can make sure that you never accidentally build twice or upgraded to another service without your consent. And privacy is also partnered with the good folks at 1Password, so you can create, use, and save privacy cards directly within your 1Password dashboard. All the virtual cards that you create in 1Password will have the same security benefits as your other privacy cards, and you can set spend limits, create single-use or merchant locked cards whenever you want. So head to privacy.com slash Stallman and sign up for a new account. New customers will automatically get $5 to spend on your first purchase. So go to privacy.com slash Stallman and sign up now. Thanks again to Privacy for supporting the show. Well, yeah. So another interesting thing about new CEO coming in too, from what I've heard is he's also part a big part of the initiative that they've been working on for a while of bringing in a, a Web3 concept to Twitter. A Yeah. I, I don't think it's like primarily like a crypto play with them, but they kind of want to become the infrastructure for Twitter-like features across the rest of the web, which is interestingly ambitious. I'll be very totally. surprised if it happens because it's so... I, we've never seen Twitter try to do anything ambitious like that. All their, Everything yeah, they yeah. attempt is very like in silo. It's siloed, right? It's like totally. there's, there's spaces over here. And if you want to interact with them, you can totally ignore them. And we're probably yeah. going to shut them down after some period of time. And then Periscope, yeah. you know, like it's yeah. all very broken out. So the idea that they're just going to become some kind of open uh, API for the rest of the internet to host this kind of conversation. I'll be surprised if it worked out. But it also offers a segue into something else I want to talk to you about, which is just generally half my Twitter feed lately is is either either people pumping Web3 or memes making fun of it or both within the same tweet. And I don't know, the last episode, I, f- I finally talked about cryptocurrencies and, and blockchain a little bit in general. But I feel like there is still so much momentum behind larger concepts of Web3, tons of energy behind NFTs, especially in photography communities that I follow. Like more and more people I know personally are getting involved in it and some of them finding great success. Noah Kalina, who's been on this show, just looking at what he has on foundations. He had a a great series for sale the other day, but he put together, his series is the photo every day that he's been doing for over 20 years now. And he did a collage of the first 20 years of every single photo that was on it and sold that for uh, however many Ethereum adds up to $50,000. And then I saw that it's relisted now for $500,000. So, you know, it's just this interesting, and if, and the interesting thing about NFTs is you'd get a kickback if that resale happens, he doesn't just, you're like constantly, yeah. It's like residuals. Another 50 or whatever. So that's just like very specific examples. Um, I don't want to go too far down any one rabbit hole because like what it can be is so many things. I just have regular people asking me every day if they should uh, be, if they're missing out by not being part of web three or if they're should be worried about the metaverse taking over. And uh, I don't know where you, where are you at with it? I mean the, the NFT space I've, I've, I've kind of consciously stayed out of that conversation, at least uh, in Twitter and stuff like that. I've had a lot of like good offline conversations with people about it, but like, there's two sides of it. One side of it is I haven't really found much interest in the types of art that have been sort of being sold for like astronomical amounts of money. And it's not to say that there's anything wrong with them. Art is completely subjective. So I understand why stuff is selling, but I don't, it's not really a space that I operated in the type of creativity they want to do. And then the other side of it is that I've always had an ethos of here's my stuff. It's for you to use. And it's mostly free if I've put it on these channels. And it seems to like counter that sort of like moral compass that I have. Like, 
I'm a, I was a huge fan of Unsplash and I've like had a great success in their top 50 contributions, top 100 downloads of, of all time on that site. And I, and like, because I use it so much, you know what I mean? It's like, I use those sites to build, you know, keynote decks and, you know, shot lists and stuff for clients and website templates, all that kind of stuff. And I love the idea of the web being an open and free space. Whereas I think like NFTs going backwards in time a little bit to like creative commons type stuff and copyright and all that. And it just feels I'm hesitant towards it. I understand the value of a new way for us to sell art. That is really interesting to me, but I don't like the implications of everybody saying everything should have some sort of Ethereum value attached to it. The crappiest thing of all time to the greatest thing of all time. That seems not the web that I really want to be a part of. So I've had a hard time and I've struggled to sort of find my access point. The other side of me is the internet troll where I'm like, fuck yeah, let's, let's do this. <laughs> why not? Like I, I'm a huge fan of shit posts and memes and stuff like that. So it's like, why not, you know, do a pepperoni pizza series or something? You know what I mean? Where it's like, why not get into it? If this just seems to be a thing that people are spending money on as its own art project of like, if people are going to buy whatever they want to buy, why not get into that? And then my moral compass kicks in again. It's like, cause no, I like this free internet. I like the fact that if you want my photos, go for it, make it your wallpaper, download it, right? Click save, go for it. It's all fine. Sure. There's when I do client work, those clients are paying me. They're licensing that stuff to do that. I'm not out here trying to sell art. So I can't really relate to it in that extent either. Right. So I could see if I was someone who was trying to sell art and that being a new avenue for me. And if I found an audience, hundred percent, go for it, make, make your money. That's, that's what you're here for. Personally speaking, though, I've just had an access point issue of getting into the whole NFT thing of it. And then they're, like not to, to, to dump on the dunk on that community at all. But I, I have found a bit of it like hard to access and how they communicate and like the sort of like barriers to entry within it, if that makes sense. You know I, what I mean? Like, I think it's OK. I think it's OK to dunk on them a little bit. OK, yeah, they're they very vocal gatekeeper <laughs> and vocal. It's yeah. just like, you know, there's there seems to be like steps and rules to how you do a launch and stuff that you have to sort of like follow. That's like an unwritten thing too. So you've got to get into this whole thing. You got to say the whole GM good morning every day. And I'm just like, is this me? Do I want to like taint my presence within the internet just to get into this to maybe make a quick buck out of it? Like that doesn't seem right. So to go at it, you got to be like, sorry, go ahead. The GM thing, it feels super culty to me. Like it does. Yeah. Yeah. It it feels I I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to like over dramatize it, but it's like, there's just so much of it. It's not it's not occasional. It's not just a, a running joke. Maybe it's no, a running it's joke. Like, I don't know, but but it's like yeah. every day from totally, so many people. Totally. And it and, and not being in it, it's this feeling of like, is this just like this, you know, sort of secret handshake to like yeah. if you don't do it, if you don't do the handshake, you're not in the club. Don't stonecutter really society weird. thing. Like yeah. it's like, yeah, you, like that part of it is just definitely not my vibe or or what mm-hmm. I stand for. So that is obviously another barrier of entry for me. But like I, I the other thing is like, you know, someone like Beepu, who was like the the most the highest selling NFT of all time. I really enjoyed his art previous to the whole NFT craze. So like that one, like actually made a lot of sense to me because it was like it kind of fit what he did making digital art. And it was like his own art project. And I sent the fact that it sold for so much is like very Banksy to me. Like it's its own statement in itself that the fact that the piece sold for so much. Right. And his pieces continue to sell for so much. So that made sense to me. But then my worry is a lot of people just sort of jumped in on it, like the dot com craze or something where it's like, or even Shopify. It's like, we all got to start a t-shirt store now. We all got to do this. We all got to drop ship. Right. And I feel like that's sort of what's happening with NFTs. Like we all got to get in on it because this will crash and bubble at some point and you'll all sit back and be like, I can't believe we missed it. But I'm also like, yeah, but I'm also like, I don't know if I'd be worried if I missed it. Like I might be okay if I don't, if I sit this one out, you know what I mean? There'll be another thing. Yeah. yeah. There'll be another thing. Yeah. 
I think I come to a similar conclusion to you, but through a different path. Um, cause well, what you're saying about, you know, uh, that you like to be able to give as much as you can away for free. And then you have your paying clients. Yeah. I like, I like everyone to get paid for as much as they possibly can. Like if it's work, totally. um, I, you know, I, I I, I, I love getting paid. I, I like to see other people get paid, especially when it comes Absolutely. to creative stuff. And so like, Absolutely. it is exciting for me when I see photographers be able to like come out with a good paycheck. I was talking about Noah before. Yeah, He's always been one of my like all time favorite photographers. I've been following him since I was a teenager and he's influenced my work a lot. So I love seeing him find success and other people like that. Um, so I, I like, I like there being a new market for, creative work that can make incredible money. Um, and it, I, I'm, I'm not totally sure that it's going to be sustainable long-term. I kind of have a feeling that this will come in and go and, um, there, there probably will be something a bit more sustainable that'll shake out of it in the future. But a lot of that suspicion comes from the fact that this already, there was the framework for this already. And it was just legal. It was like, you can buy the, you could always buy the rights to any image. And it was not that hard to like, this was totally available. If you emailed, your favorite photographer and you're like, I want to give you $50,000 to own all the rights to this one image. They'd all say yes. Cause like they would love the money and like nobody else, you know, so having it be on the blockchain, I don't feel like is really actually changing the, the, how society functions in terms of no. exchanging art in a, in a lot of ways. Um, it just kind of made everybody aware that, Oh, you could own the original, uh, rights to it. So, um, yeah, I, I, I love people making money. I'm glad there's a new, a new way towards it, but I, what I'm not into is that I, I don't, I don't participate in it at this moment because I don't see the underlying value to the final product being purchased and that in yeah. the same way that I was just talking about. So yeah. we've always licensed our photography through stock, you know, Stocksy is still the agency that has our work for sale and we still make a paycheck from it every month. And, um, that's all I've always had a side income of some amount of stock licensing coming through. And it's very similar to what an NFT is like. It's, it's a, I'm selling a license to the image. People could right click it and download it, but instead they get a larger, uh, resolution version of the file, but more importantly, they get a license allowing them to use it. Right. So an NFT is kind of the same thing. You could already download the image, but now you have a, a blockchain license saying that you have permission to do whatever you want with it. So now you own it. Um, or not, you may not actually own the license. That's optional. Anyway, uh, the payment part is great, but I, I just like, I, I don't think that the the person spending all that money is really getting that much benefit most of the time by owning a, a JPEG. Yeah, there's like, that's the thing. It's like, look, I'm a, I'm a big fan of like physical media too. Like I collect CDs, I collect cassette tapes, VHS and stuff. And like, there's the collector in me can understand the psychological value of feeling like you own something. So there's something into that that I think is kind of fueling a lot of this too, where it's like, it's it's for you yourself. Like we could all look at pictures of Pokemon cards, but there's totally something different when someone actually has that Charizard. Clearly, when you see like YouTube blowing up with like, you know, million dollar Pokemon cards, stuff like that, we can all look at those as photos on the internet and be like, okay, that's it. That's cool. But there's something about having like the actual thing. I don't know if I can relate that psychologically to something digital because I grew up in a right click save as kind of kind of world and that's just who I am. So I don't get the same emotional value of owning something on the internet. I don't even like having a, an iTunes version of a movie that I like I need the actual copy, right? And like I've been I, I've been monitoring sort of like the sales of physical media over the last few years too. Like cassettes are up like 120% year over year from last. Like sure, it's not the volume of what people are streaming, like not even close. But the fact that there's like a world where people actually do 
value owning things is is very interesting to me. So I just don't see that same value feeling with an NFT for myself, but I could see how people could feel that way. Like they'll start collecting things. I could see Gen Z getting into it as like, oh, this is things that I own and there's actual monetary value to this stuff. And there's other people that also see this as a collection that they really like and enjoy. And we're all spending money on it. And that's the value we've perceived and we put on it ourselves, right? Because at the end of the day, like art is the value we put on it, right? There's, well, so we could say, I sorry, try- go ahead. I was trying to make the Web3 pitch to my wife the other day, just trying to explain it. And, and I don't pitch it very well because I'm not, I don't think there's a lot to it yet. But I, cu- I couldn't even describe the, the future optimistic version like the best, the most exciting I could make it sound is I'm like, okay, you know how in Fortnite people spend a lot of money <laughs> on different costumes and dances. Yeah. I would never ever do that, and I think it's crazy to do that. But yeah, apparently lots of people do it. Well, now if you do that, and if all the other developers sign on, which I'm very skeptical that they ever would, then you could transport those dances and costumes to other games, and that's the future of the web economy. And I'm just like, that doesn't sound interesting. Like that doesn't. No, like, I, that, that already exists. You can no. already do that if. All, the, you don't need crypto for these companies to decide to support interoperable costumes and dances and whatever. And that's the best pitch I've heard so far. Then there's, there's other, there's other things for like, uh, you know, music DAOs, I guess. I don't really actually know the suggestion of how it would work that communities could come together to, um, uh, basically buy music in a way that the musician's able to get more money. But I've, I've heard this proposed, but that could happen right now on, Shopify or what, or GoFundMe or, you know, like this, there's nothing being enabled by the new technology. So yeah, it feels like a rebranding of a lot of things too. Like, I also wonder like, okay, let's, let's hypothetically say Apple comes out with their AR glasses next year, right? Hypothetically, best case scenario, they come out with some sort of, you know, there's the rumors that it's like some $3,000 niche unit for developers and stuff like that. Sure. Whatever has to start small and then they'll scale. Right. Where does Apple look at that and go, we want people to buy digital clothes in this or whatever, these art in their house and stuff. And like, I can't imagine the way Apple works and the way they have these, like, to be honest, like closed down ecosystems. Like we just saw with the whole Epic Games thing with with the App Store. What does that look like from an open Web3 blockchain NFT type space? Like I personally, not even just to be an Apple fanboy or sheep, I would, I'm kind of like cautiously optimistic to see what company's going to step in for me to start taking it seriously? You know what I mean? Like, and maybe that's the wrong. Maybe I'll, 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 I'll eat my words one day on that. But it's like, I'm more curious to see when a company like Apple or Google, like these guys that are really controlling the internet at this point, to be honest, what are they going to do in that space? Do they think it's something that's down the road? I know they, they care about crypto. We've heard Tim Cook say he owns crypto and stuff like that. That's fine. But crypto is very different than the NFT stuff where you're buying digital goods, right? And that's where I'm kind of just like, where's that going to go? Like, look, I like the Oculus Quest too. I like wearing VR and I like playing in those spaces and stuff like that. But I don't care about what I own in those spaces, right? It's like that stuff doesn't have any sort of meaning or value to me. And I I don't imagine a future where that will happen. I don't even imagine a future of Apple convincing me I'm going to own some digital version of something. Like, what is that? What I can't, like you said, I, I can't imagine the future where it's exciting. So it has to be told, it has yeah. to be told to me at some point. Right. Yeah. So all this said, uh, do, do you have any money in crypto? Like as a speculative financial thing you do, you do? I do. Yeah. Cause I do too. So, <laughs> so I, cause if we're going to crap on it a lot, I also want to say the thing, like the reasons I'm not a hundred percent against it. So. 
Totally same. And it's like, I see the crypto benefit of like, you know, decentralized, get away from banks and all that stuff. That's your money. You own it within that. It's all, you know, the way the whole, and the funny, the funny thing is like, I got into it without even like doing a whole, whole lot of research about it. Like, I don't know the ins and outs of how it all works and the minting and how to like, all that is beyond me. But I know enough of it from like a speculative market sense that I, I treat it more like I would treat stocks. So it's just another way to invest right now. And so I keep up on it in that sense. And like, you know, as companies are saying, they're going to start like enabling payments through crypto like that. That to me is like when Tesla was saying like they were going to do crypto and then they got rid of it and all that, whatever. But like moments like those are where I'm like, OK, yeah, look, when a big company takes a giant leap like this, this is how the, the rest of the world gets like the door open for them. Right. I just don't think we've had that yet with an with NFT space. We haven't had a big company to say like, oh, OK, yeah, it's OK, everybody. This is fine. The water jump on in the water's fine kind of feel. It's just really every a lot of trepidation across the map. And that concerns me of like, I don't want to get into it and then get burned or it's not the experience that I, that I thought it was going to be. Right. Well, or in the most popular conversations about this, like if you just look at YouTube videos explaining it, or if you listen to the biggest podcasts about crypto, you're going to also start getting a feeling pretty quickly that you need a lot of money to actually be involved with any of this. Like if you are not wealthy, like, you know, you have money to literally light on fire taking (laughs) a a huge risk on something that doesn't exist at all. Like this is just like, this is for people that have play money. If you, if it matters to you that your next paycheck goes to, you know, keeping your apartment or, um, you know, getting shoes that aren't so worn out, like you don't have to be, you have to just have quite a bit of extra money to to be able to be playing around with crypto. Like it is so not a, a a true mainstream concept. So, and I don't feel like that gets acknowledged enough in these popular conversations that it's like, it's, it, this is such a, a like a, a privileged thing to be messing around with at this point and pretending that like it's on the cusp of revolutionizing everybody's life. It's like, we're, we're just not close. <laughs> That's not happening anytime soon. And, so. and the ship sort of sailed too on, on the NFT side of things of like even getting stuff posted. Like there's, First off, like getting on the sites is its own concern and issue. But then there's like these things called gas fees where you got to pay to even you got to invest to get your pieces out to people. And so you're putting money up front. It's like it's kind of like renting space at a gallery, essentially. Right. Where I got to pay to put this work even out there. And I don't know if anybody's going to really buy it. And like those fees apparently keep going up and up and up. And like that early kind of boom where everybody just said, let's let's play around. Let's have some fun with it. Like there was that story of that like 14 year old kid that made like 40 grand or something like that, making little avatars or something right like that ship has kind of sailed a little bit at this point where like if you really want to get in it now you got to be really stand by the work that you did but also have that upfront capital to get the pieces out there and then that whole thing again like you got to get into that community and like not to like this is total speculation but there seems to be a bit of a like nft laundering scheme a little bit where it's like a lot of people are buying pieces trading moving and it's like it's showing volume and it's showing that people are buying things but it seems like a lot of buying within the community itself. And that is also a bit concerning to me. Like when it becomes a little bit more public and it's like, you know, random people start buying it. Like, look, we just talked about like people aren't even wanting to use Twitter. It seems like it's hard for me to convince my friends to be like, you should buy this like little clip art well, for you know, $4,000, right? <laughs> yeah. All the prices that we're hearing about are thousands. I mean, like thousands, you can't, yeah. when I look at the, the artists that I like, I'm like, wow, this isn't, this isn't a story of, uh, you know, spending hundreds on, you know, special edition like box material that you might from a musician like you'd get with when I love a musician. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine spending a few hundred bucks on 
you know, merch or, uh, you know, yeah, box vinyl sets, whatever. or whatever. Yeah. 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 But like, that is just, it is just a whole other realm of like what you need to invest to, to support artists that you like. And I think I'd be less suspicious of it all. If those average prices were like, you know, there's more people finding success when they're selling everything for a hundred dollars a piece or, or finding a way to, to, to make, you know, $30, uh, casual photos, turn into a, a business or, 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 you know, but the idea that every, like, no, 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 you're not going to participate in this unless each piece that you make is worth at least $5,000. Super weird to me. I don't know. I'm, it's funny you say that. Cause like the, the low, the low price, high volume is interesting because like, I I'm more interested in like what Isaac, like what Knupsi's doing with wallpapers. The fact that people are paying five, $10 for a wallpaper. I think years ago, even la- if someone told you that on paper, they'd laugh at you. Like, like who's going to pay 10 bucks for a wallpaper, but his volume totally. no, is crazy, it's right? It's yeah, it's I, awesome. I yeah. bought some. Or, or exactly. also, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. You know, looking back at my last year as well, it's been a, almost exactly a year since a year since I put together my first pack of my LUT pack and pre, uh, Lightroom presets, which I I did a pretty minimal amount of effort into it. I was basically like, look, I have a set of presets that I already use myself, that you know I've tweaked and developed over time and turned into exactly the way that I like them. So hey, like instead of just making them free, how about I charge a few bucks for them and they can kind of be a way to support the things that I do. And they've just sort of like gradually sold throughout the year and they're not very expensive, but like I've gotten an extra little paycheck every month. Like it, it, it definitely has counted for something and it is a way to support a mid-level creator. And um, it's like, but the thing is it doesn't rely on any external technology. Like this is just processing a credit card and you get the thing and then the, then it's over. <laughs> Totally. So, and uh, what's interesting yeah. about that too is like psychologically, it's like, you know, I, I the reason I use Isaac's option uh, thing too is like a lot of people can just right click and save those images, but they're they're buying it, right? They're physically yeah. saying, yeah, I, I want it. Was, I want it. Yeah, totally. It was in my and like that video, to me yeah. is like a really good litmus test for like, you can't be afraid to charge money for things. There are things where you can say like, look, I think this has value. And I've told you, this is what I think the value is. If you don't agree with it, you, there will be piracy. There will be people that take it off. But the vast majority of people now are not pirating things anymore. Like we thought that would happen if you want to call it in like web two, you know what I mean? Like we had that whole Napster nonsense. We had all that and the, the internet figured it out. We stream, we do these things, we buy movies, we watch them on HBO Max, we do all that. The vast majority of people are still paying for content and creativity. It's a very, very small number in terms of the people that are abusing the system as it stands right now. So I'm also not entirely sure what nfts and blockchain solve on that front either the whole like well i know that i own this thing now well a lot of people were buying stuff already so what what is it that you're really trying to solve there was one sort of interesting thing that i heard uh john favreau talk about in a behind the scenes for mandalorian as we get into deep fakes what he said is like blockchains might be the only way for us to verify a person on a screen which i thought was like terrifying on one side but then i saw utility that was the first time i saw utility for blockchain from a creativity sense. Because when they did Mark Hamill and they made him the young, sorry for Mandalorian spoilers, but it's way beyond way beyond that point now. But when, you know, when Luke <laughs> shows up at the end, yeah, yeah. When Luke shows up at the end, like he's talked about like, look, we the technology is basically there now where you can make a photorealistic human being say and do whatever the hell you want. So blockchain might be one of the only ways to actually verify the video that you watched of that human being was actually that, that human being. So that's little food for yeah, thought, and, the matrix, yeah. <laughs> and- Conversations like that are absolutely why I'm not skeptical about there being some applications that end up making sense. And that killer app could always show up any day now. And by 
you know, by owning and, and to wrap this up kind of soon, cause I, I can't talk about web three all day, which is like, yeah, yeah, it's all good. Also the most hilarious rebrand. It's like web 2.0 yeah. already <laughs> existed. And we, yeah. we were calling, we were calling websites that existed. Web 2.0 it was a name for a thing that existed. And web three is like, no, we're just going to rebrand crypto and the metaverse and all these things. We're just going to start calling them that even though none of them have any applications yet. Anyway, uh, they will, I, I do think there will be some kind of application that'll become useful in the future and by investing in, in, in various coins, it's not the same for, for all of the, the tokens. So like Bitcoin is basically purely speculative. I've heard it described as like the gold of, you know, of, uh, crypto. And so it's, it's just this feeling of like, it's going to probably keep going up in the long term. So, uh, but I have very little of Bitcoin, like barely any, most of what we have invested was into Ethereum. And in, in in a few in alternate altcoins. And the um the goal with that or the the way of thinking about it that I justify it by is that like it's betting on it's the same as betting on tech companies in the 90s. Like these are going to be the technologies that end up solving these problems. Ethereum obviously is leading the way in terms of them, but they have some fundamental problems. So there's room for others to come up. But so it's the same as like buying stock in Oracle in, you know, 1997 or something, or I, I don't know the real equivalent, Blake, you're like, you're like, this will be part of the future, future infrastructure and I'm placing bets on who's going to position themselves as a, a key tool in that killer app when it eventually arrives. And it just, it hasn't yet. So I'd also like to talk about video workflow a little bit. Um, Cause I always find it interesting the way that you do things, which is I'd say like relatively not non-conventional, um, yeah. <laughs> in, in your approach to videos and stuff, like you have yeah, a yeah. unique look and, and I, I really love it. And, um, what, I, I guess just like, what are some of the tools that you've really found useful over the past year that have helped you create? And not, I guess not just video as well, like, you know, photography tools, video tools, like what are the things that have really sort of shaped the, your creative process lately? Yeah. So for like, for me, like everything is about the least barriers possible. And it's not that I'm lazy. It's just that my brain moves at a thousand miles per minute. And as soon as something impedes, you make a lot of stuff. I'm, yeah, exactly. And it's like, as soon as something impedes on that process, I tend to jump off it and go somewhere else. And so if I'm going to be doing YouTube stuff, for example, I want everything that I do with YouTube to be like a well-oiled machine as best as it possibly can. Cause it's like, I find that as soon as something, especially cause it's like not my main job, like for those that don't know, like I, YouTube is a side hustle for me. Like I do client commercial photography and videography stuff. So I want YouTube to feel fun. I want YouTube to be this place where I can be myself and have some fun with it and do cool things that I probably necessarily wouldn't have the option to do with clients. And it's also a testing ground for me for ideas and concepts and learning things. And so when it comes to that, like I remember when the M1 first came out, there was a lot of hesitation in conversations of like, I got to wait for the pro version. I need to get the pro version. I just spent $4,000 on a 16 inch MacBook Pro that kept kind of going out there. But I took a gamble, I guess, on that that M1 Mac Mini because I was like, look, I'm running a 15 inch, you know, Intel MacBook Pro that cost three thousand dollars, thirty five hundred bucks when it came out. And I it was chugging. It was the fans were going blasting. I'm like, I'm so sick of this computer. Let me take this, you know, gamble on this the machine, see what happens. And I can actually like like if I look at my analytics, I can actually see the upload quantity go up and the and the value of the of the views go up when I got that machine because it was like I can shoot and edit and get videos up in half a day now, a couple hours here and there. And I never felt any sort of slowdown in that process with that, that M1 Mac mini. And so then when the iMac came out, which I'm using for this right now, it's like when that came out, I was like, that's just one more machine, machine there that I can be inspired by and have fun with. It's all in one. It's cool. 
I had thought about it and I was thinking about you with that, with this machine when I got it too. It was like, it seemed like a really cool on set photo, like Lightroom Capture One type computer too, to have on set with me for tethering and stuff like that. Obviously with the pandemic, I haven't had many opportunities to use it that way. It is in the pipeline for that. I would love to use it that way. But for me, like the M1 and the MacBooks and all, even the iPhone, like when I did my 13 Pro review, it's like, I've been happy with phones for the last like four or five years. Like to be completely honest with you, like the way that I shoot and the way that I edit, like I don't need the best of the best, but like I just like the new thing because it inspires me. And when it came to that 13 Pro, even when that came out, it's just like, it just gets the shot faster and easier and it looks better out of the gate, just marginally enough to keep me excited to keep making things with it. And that's how, that's sort of how I feel with, with all cameras. Like right now I've been using an old X100T, which is like, I don't know, we're two, two or three versions behind the latest version of that, that camera. And I'm not using it because it looks the best. I'm using it because it inspires me the, the most to use it. And you know, the, I've been posting photos of it for the last like month or so, and everyone's been been loving them. And it's like, everyone's like, what camera, what camera? And I don't even really like to answer that question usually because it, for me, it, it puts out this world of like, it's the camera that made these videos and this photo is so great. And I'm at this crossroads right now with a lot of that within YouTube. In my last camera review, I haven't talked about how it might be one of my last camera reviews because I just, I'm hitting this point now where I'm like, I'm, I'm lacking the excitement to be like, oh, wow, it's got 10 bit now. And oh, it shoots raw over HDMI. I'm like, yeah, we've been doing that for years now. Like, I don't really think it's going to make you a better filmmaker or a better YouTuber. I'm much more into the tools that are expire- inspiring you and are easy to use rather than what's the best of the best that's out. Now, the tech side of me and just the the fanboy of technology progressing forward, of course, loves that stuff. I think the Ronin 40 is like a huge leap forward for the industry. But I'm more interested in buying that camera five, five years from now when I can pick it up used. Like I don't, I don't think see it adding monumental value to what I do in this current moment, but when it's cheaper and more affordable and I can have some new tool to play with, that's exciting to me. So in an overall way, I'm always just looking for the least barriers possible to get whatever is up here onto a screen and it making it fun throughout that entire process too. I've had yeah, a jokey thing where I, I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. It's part of the reason I'd really shifted towards only reviewing video cameras. Like I haven't done really any photo cameras for a while is because that had stabilized so much earlier. Um, they already got good enough, you know, really around like the 5D Mark IV. Yeah, and absolutely. And since then, yeah. it's like there, there are things to talk about, and I keep talking about them, but it's not as crazy as what has been happening on the video side. But like you say, we're starting to get to that level point where every price point has some camera that is good enough for the the, the final output won't be sacrificed based on which camera you choose. Like it will be good enough whether you use camera A, B, or C. It was like that for a long time with photography, but it's just getting there now with video. So yeah, and like that's the thing. It's like I, I'll tell because I mean you get these questions all the time too. But like everyone always asks me, what camera should I buy? What camera should I buy? Like first thing I start with is obviously price point, but then also like what do you what are you making? Like what's exciting to you? What's interesting to you? And then if I start to realize like you know oh I you know I just want to run around and I want to shoot B roll and I want to do some mini docs and stuff like that, I'm like autofocus is going to be important for you. So let's start looking at these brands, right? Like for me, it's like niche features that certain cameras are better at, which is totally a real thing. And it'll make your job easier. Like there's a reason Sony has taken off so well with that autofocus and just the cameras themselves. They tend to do everything the best and the most well-rounded in terms of that. I personally think they're still a little bit overpriced, but I think as all these other cameras catch up with autofocus, you know, even Canon's doing awesome stuff now, all these brands are just doing so well. Once these little quirks are gone, you know, if it's like Panasonic finally gets phase detected at some point, autofocus, like 
the playing field becomes so incredibly level that it really is like, what's the camera you pick up and you're inspired by? Like, look, I'm using the pocket 4K to film this right now. And I loathe this camera for anything else but the sensor. <laughs> I hate the way it feels. I hate the way it holds in my hand. I hate the screen on yeah, it. I hate everything about it. It's a beautiful it. sensor, totally. But it's a beautiful yeah. sensor. And so I will use it in situations like this where I'm like, all those things that go out the window, I'm not holding the camera. I'm not running around with it. It's just sitting on a tripod. And so like, okay, this camera works in this situation. But, you know, nine times out of 10, I'm going to grab my Lumix S5 or something like that, or even a Fuji camera, because when I pick it up, I know I'm happy. This is the thing that I want to do. It's going to do. It's not going to stop me from any of the things that I want to do. And it's, I'm excited. And the work that I'm going to make is, is going to be better. We, you and I could both pick up any camera and make things that look fantastic. I know that about all of us that are doing this right now. It's really not the cameras that is making us who we are. It's all the skill and talent and ability that we've built up for years and years and years doing this. But we will sit there and still say, I prefer this camera over this camera, not because maybe it makes my work better, but it makes the flow and the experience better, right? Well, all that said, going back to the new MacBooks is, I mean, it it perfectly applies to those because it really has enabled, it's greased the wheels, you know, it's it's added this smoothness to the process that I instantly felt right away. And maybe the best example, and this will apply to a lot of people, is the Canon R5. the reviews coming out when they did were, were really focused on the image quality and the overheating. Like that's almost yeah. all the conversation was about, like, you know, incredible 8K uh, raw video, but huge trade-offs that you can only shoot for so long. And that was so much of the conversation that I don't think we spent enough time talking about that it was generating these files that were impossible to edit, even on Mac Pros, even on the best of the best machines, it would just chug and from what i've heard it's also been like that with some of the sony's as well the a7s4 uh or wait which one's which a7s3 and the a7 4 yeah they both they, they have similar issues of like you need horsepower to do this and even then it's not necessarily going to be as fast as you hope for um and just everything every good new camera was like okay uh the image looks better and better but it's gonna be harder and harder to work with even though the, the for no obvious reason it just wasn't clear why this was happening but it was becoming reality and it meant that you had to shoot proxies if the camera supported it, or if it didn't shoot proxies, then generating proxies has to be part of your workflow because you can't work with this footage. So uh, great. We all got better image quality, but we literally either can't use the files or need to spend an extra, you know, 10% of the edit time, just setting everything up to be, to be workable. So now having machines that like we don't need proxies for these at all. I mean, all of my cameras, I can just dump it onto this machine and edit it immediately. And that is really significant. And it just totally speaks to what you're saying, that ability to like just get things done more quickly and, and not spend so much time thinking about workarounds or how you're going to execute the, the technical aspects of the production. It's like you just put it out. Yeah, what's what's kind of funny about that too is I think about this a lot with the iPhone. I, I can't remember who some made a review and their, their title was like, this is the most boring iPhone. But that I mean, like, that's a good thing because it's just it works, right? There's something really odd about these new M1 machines, whether it's M1, M1 Pro, M1 Max, like any, anytime you start using one, the, the lack of friction takes a little bit getting used to. There was like something about friction in the creative process that some sometimes is a little bit beneficial, like that little bit of frustration would make you be a little bit more creative. You had to think about around the box of like how you wanted to do certain things because you were conscious of that like limitation, right? Whereas now, like, you know, I have the 14 inch M1 Pro and it's like, there's nothing wrong with it. I can't find a single thing wrong with this this machine. And it just, it works to this, the extent it's it's that it's boring, right? It's just, it works so well that there's nothing 
overly exciting about it. The fact that it's just like, you know, you flip that lid up, you're going to put an SD card in or whatever it is that you use. And from start to finish, that thing's just going to fly. It's just going to work the entire time. Would I trade so that off for to... those limitations before? No, but, but <laughs> there is are something kind of weird about it. Yeah. YouTube videos then? Like, what are we going to make YouTube videos that's, about? Well, if, that's uh, the thing, right? I mean, it's our like, cameras that's are perfect. Can... Our computers are yeah. perfect. Like, where are we going to go from here? I, I, that's the thing. It's like, it's that's that crisis. Like, yeah, yeah. That's that crisis I know a lot of YouTubers are going through right now. It's like, what what do we focus on? And it's like, I have this other thing with YouTube where I'm, I'm, I'm starting to get out of the idea of making videos about making videos. And like, I just feel like when I make tech videos, I think I make better videos because I'm not focusing on teaching how to make that video. Does that make sense? Like I'm, I'm making a video and I'm presenting something and I'm putting it together, but I'm learning in that process because I'm not conscious about like, oh, I got to show them how to light this and how to do this. And why am I framing things like this way? And this is whatever the thesis of that tutorial may have been. And so now I'm in this point now where I want to do filmmaking videos, definitely for sure, and photography, but not necessarily about actually making them, which is a hard space to get into. And if you're not doing camera reviews either, it's a hard space to get views in as well. So I don't know if for me if that like turns into like more video essay type stuff, which I have done in the past, it's done pretty well. But that's the my headspace is in that kind of world right now as we go into the new year. And I'm like reflecting on on this past year where tech videos did astronomically well, everything did really well on that front, but it's like is that really what I want to do? I'm learning as a filmmaker by making them and I know people will watch them, but it's not necessarily the utility or value that I think will be sustainable until the next crazy huge leap happens again. Right. Which I don't know is, is, is foreseeable for the next few years, but who knows? Well, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that you've also got some freedom at this point by not having YouTube be your primary or, or, sure. or like a, a significant like part of your number business, one right? goal. And yeah. Like it's not my number one. Yeah. And I mean, that does become a bit of a challenge for me is like I and, you know, other people It's like as it became, uh, you know, a, a kind of even part of, of how we run our business between commercial production and uh, Anya's social media and then YouTube is basically how things are split. It means that I can't really take the same chances because I can't let a video bomb which sometimes i mean sometimes they do anyway <laughs> like there's no there's never a yeah, guarantee but you're not you're not, you're, not act, you're never you're never actively like thinking i don't think this video is gonna do well you're always going at it being like i really i'm i'm putting into this and i i'm yeah i have all best but, intentions for this video to do well yeah but it also means that sometimes i don't get to do videos that i'm like this would just be fun like i just want to talk about this like one that uh, the chance has passed is when i had the canon c200 i'd figured out a pretty great workflow that i think probably would have helped out a lot of other people i think i talked about it on the podcast once or time i was like once or twice i was like I should do this video. It should be like 40 minutes long. Of like, here's how to work with this camera. Um, but there's just no, I, I have too many, uh, you know, d d like business related jobs to do, like, you know, things that clients are waiting for to do this sort of for fun project that would be really time consuming. And there's no uh, business case for it really, which is super yeah, lame. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, it's not where you want to end up being, but it's like, it's, it's just part of the difference of like running, uh, creative pursuits as a business versus just to like enjoy it. Um, so I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it. Like I, I, I like the way I, I like that it's a business and it allows me to spend more time doing it. Um, so I'm not going to change it to just being a hobby, but there's trade-offs. So. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I have a, a lot of friends that like operate in, in that same sort of like sub hundred K sub 50 K space. And like, I, the thing that I, we always have conversations about is like, we're still small enough to experiment, right? Like I'm, I don't lose sleep if a video tanks at all. Like I, if, especially if it's a video I really enjoyed making, like I just did like a silly video, like an old letter, an ode to the ceramic Apple watch, the series two, that was like not even a minute long. And I feel like if I was like 200,000 subscribers, I might've been very hesitant about putting that video up, but 
at this point, like even even as things get bigger and videos do a lot better, like I'm still in a headspace where I'm like, if a video gets under 5,000 views, I'm not losing sleep over it. If it's a video I really enjoyed making because I, I had the fun in the process to do it. I do know I will certainly get to a point at some point where things are, there's more to all of this that, you know, whether it's more revenue or, there, or whatever it ends up being that I, I'll probably lose that ability within that platform to do those sort of experiments. And so I'm just sort of like latching onto it while, while I still can as the honeymoon phase sort of sort of ends with YouTube on, on that as a creative sense. Or I could stumble upon a format that I really, really love doing that people also want to watch, right? That, I, that I'm fully getting all of the, the like emotional impact that I want out of the creativity side of it. Personally speaking, I just haven't found that yet. I found what works in my space that people want to see me talk about. It's just not necessarily what I want to talk about. So like there's a disconnect between what the audience wants from me and what I want to give an audience. And I'm trying to, I'm really trying to sort that out at this point. I think it's good to sort it out now because it's like, I don't want to sort it out when I don't have much of a choice anymore. Right. <laughs> totally. Yeah. No. And, and, yeah. and I totally get that. If like, I'm always doing this push and pull of like, what's what, what works versus what do I want to do? And I, I already am Ed, I'm, I'm not striking that balance in a way that's optimizing for growth because if I was, I wouldn't do so much that's like targeted towards professional creators because there's so many less of them. Like there's, you know, uh, I, I feel like all of them probably already listened to this podcast. And uh, if you, you know, like to, to be somebody that is willing to spend more than $5,000 on a camera or, you know, that you're editing multiple videos in a week or you're, when you do a photo shoot, you've got more than a few thousand images to sort through. Like it's not that, not, it's relatively less people doing it. A lot more people are doing it casually or aspiring to do more. And, um, so yeah, I, I've already kind of sliced the pie a little bit thinner and I know that it would be more advantageous to aim for like a wider segment to that market by doing just like broader tech stuff. Like basically just talking about the iPhone literally all the time. That's like, that's my, you know, that's where my numbers really come from. Um, same. I, I joke with Gregory McFadden. He's Greg gadgets. Like he's, he's got his niche. He basically only talks about Apple stuff, does exceptionally well at everything. And I joke with him. I'm like, you know, there, there's a world where I could only do videos around the keynotes and I would do fine, <laughs> right? Like I would do just fine, just making videos like three times a year. Like I'd do a spritz like every three, like three times a year and put out five, six videos around launches. And I would just probably just as happy as I am now. And I would just have way less work, but there's, there's too much of a, a drive within myself to do more on the platform with what I'm, what I'm interested in and what I, what I, I know, I, I think I know I'm capable of that. It doesn't feel like enough. So it's like, I know I can do it. That's another problem I have. And you might feel this too sometimes. Like sometimes you, when you finally realize you know how to do something, it doesn't become interesting anymore. It's like the chase of the pursuit to get totally. to some um, sort of success with something, right? You're like, 100%. oh shit, I did it. Cool. What's what's next? I figured it out. Like I yeah, know when no. 50K happens, um, I'm going to be like, yeah, that happened. What's next? What's next? What's next? Yeah, right? Yeah. No, that is so uh, human nature and so much yeah. of, um, you know, something I'm sort of guilty in by like pushing people to buy new stuff is like, I also want to always remind people you're not just going to be happy once you have the thing, you know, yeah. I'm telling no, you not. this yeah. new product is awesome. These new, these new Macs are incredible and they will improve your workflow, but you're going to get them and you're going to get used to it and you're going to want something yep. else. So totally. You know, Always. <laughs> like, 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 I don't know how you feel, but like, it's a trend. Yeah. The iPhone's an iPhone again. Like it only took a month or two <laughs> for that to happen. You exactly. know what I mean? Like, yeah. it was really, really cool and exciting. And I was like very inspired by it. And like I said, now I'm back to shooting like with Macs phone. on RT and stuff. But yeah, it's like, and it's just my phone. It's an iPhone again, right? No, and actually, that is happen, an effect. Yeah. You'll always see that on my Instagram as well, that like I have so many iPhone shot photos for the yeah. few months right after the phone comes out because Same. I have all this energy behind it. And like each photo looks better because it was shot yeah. on the new phone. And yeah, then yeah, once it becomes the old phone, it's like, oh, these are just normal photos. I don't know. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's it's all psychological, man. It's like I I got invited to that like Apple shooting experience event when it came out too, and it was oh, like I saw that. Yeah, I was sucking in the Kool Aid of like this is groundbreaking, like the what we can do and what we can shoot with it. And I'll, I'll tell you right now, it's like yeah, they're great cameras, but they've been great cameras for a while now, right? And I don't I wouldn't discourage anybody with a camera from an iPhone from the last three years or so. Of course, technically, there's stuff to say that are a lot better with these ones now. But from a pure, like, when you post something to Instagram or Twitter, there's not a whole lot of people that are going to be able to tell you which one was which. Was it a pixel? Is it this or at that? If you want to get technical with it, yeah, we can all sort of figure it out and pixel peep at these things. But brass tacks, I really don't think it makes makes a huge, huge difference, right? It's just well, whatever, like I said, what inspires you to... You know, it's funny you say like the photos look better when you first get it. I think it looks better because mm-hmm. we're excited and we're we're yeah. shooting things that look better. It's not really necessarily the camera that got a whole lot better. It's yeah, us actually energy. using it properly. It's the energy. Yeah. 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 I think that's true. But it, there also are those um, benchmark moments that you don't always necessarily realize they're happening as they do. But when you look back, you can spot them like oh, for sure. when yeah, yeah, yeah. Smart HDR got good. Um, which I, I, it's actually a little blurry in my mind. I know it's after the 10, like the 10 wasn't quite there. Yeah, the 10 was a week. The, the, t- the 10 was still the 10 weak. R it was like 11, 11 pro. Yes. I remember I did, I did that with Isaac. I was like, well, this camera's actually like, I can see, I have a visual, like I can see that this looks yeah. a lot better now. Yeah. yeah and yeah, looking sure. back and you can especially see it now with people that haven't updated. So whenever I'm looking at people's cameras and like, I can, you know, I see, I'm like, oh, you're on an eight or you're on a 10. Like I can see it. It looks worse. Um, There's people listening right now with an iPhone seven. They're like. I gotta get I'm telling <laughs> those are the ones I'm saying, like, go buy a used 10S, you know, like, totally, you, know, yeah, you don't need yeah. to get the newest one, but like, there are these jumps. And the, the thing is, we just hit that again with the new Macs, right? Like, now M1, you know, any Apple silicon is like, this is the time that you'll see that bump. You really will like feel it, and it actually can make a substantive change to your workflow over for, for all the future going forward. And anybody that stays on the older ones will kind of hold on to a bit of a disadvantage. So, um, I, I don't know. Maybe that's why, as we want to talk about the new Max in every single episode of this, totally, yeah, yeah. the next year yeah. is because like we hit this, this is a big deal. Let's not forget how significant it is. So it's like, for me, it's like we hit the mid 2015 MacBook pro again. You know what I mean? It's right, like, yeah. that's that laptop. I I hung on to the mid 2015 to like 20, like late 2017, almost 2018. I had that machine and I was using it for everything. And like I said, I got around the limitations of it. I knew what I had to do, proxy, whatever, but I, I made it work. And it was a machine that I held on to for so long because I just was not happy with everything from like 2018 or even 2016 till now. So I feel like now at this point with this machine, it feels like a machine I'll probably hang on to for another four or five years, if, if not indefinitely, like just keeping it in the, in, in the flow, in the fold, right? That's, that's so still my wife's that's, machine. That's, yeah. It's actually 2014, not even 2015. And it's, it's significant because that's actually what, when we're working on photography, everything gets ingested into her machine first and she does all the initial editing and sorting and, and all that. So like it gets used as a major part of our workflow. And she's just like, I love this computer. Like I don't, the new ones might be great, but I don't care. Cause I already have the computer that I love and there's nothing wrong with it. So, you know, I'm going to keep using it. And I'm like, that's great. Like that's, that's actually the most successful story of a computer is that it Absolutely. keeps working for you. If you feel like you need to replace it every few years, that's like, well, I don't know. We're, we're in a little bit different position, I think, because video, video and 3D are like the only things that really, really push computers to like needing the latest. Photography has not been pushing computers for a few years now. So it's funny, whenever I make videos about, uh, you know, like, how is this new Mac for photographers? I, I kind of admit the truth right up front. I'm like, well, you already, they're already good enough. You already have a good enough machine probably right now, um, unless you're doing big 
uh, like focus stacking or panorama HDRs or like gigapixel, whatever. And most, most people are not. And if they are doing it, they definitely mention it in the comments, but uh, it's <laughs> just like for any regular photographer, you're already fine, but I'll still make the video and I'll still talk about it. And like, there's always room for improvement, but um, I, and I actually think a lot of the, the choke points still haven't fully been addressed with photography. Like um, for all the positive things I've had to say about these, when I'm editing in Lightroom and Photoshop and Capture One, actually, there's still all these moments where it's like, if I just save in Photoshop, even to the internal hard drive, which you know how fast it is, like I have benchmarked, I see how fast it is. I'm still waiting 20 seconds, like a while. It's it's not instant. It's not that fast. Uh, save for web is still super slow. Um, the blur filters, like oh, just opening the window and then generating the preview, super slow. Um, Lightroom, as you just flip through photos, this is maybe one of the worst ones, is it's still not instant. Like it, you still always need to watch a lower quality preview preload and then the real one loads in and you don't get the histogram instantly. So if you're trying to flip back and forth to compare two images, you don't have this instant back and forth. And the amount faster that the hard drive and GPU and everything is, it it, it should it should be instant based on the results we've seen everywhere else. And it's totally not. So there's some kind of like hidden bottlenecks that are still really affecting daily workflows that I don't even, I don't think are going to get fixed in the next few hardware updates. I think there's something weird going on with the software. So I think, I think, yeah, I definitely think it's software for sure. The one thing that I'm hoping for at some point is better H.265. For me, it's not the, the importing or editing and stuff like that. These these machines still struggle at exporting H.265. Like I know like Gerald Undone, he's got a 3080 in a PC and he can like render out H265 like lightning. And I, I just can't with any of these M1 machines that I play with. It's still well, slow, right? Speaking of, okay, huge thank you for a tip that everybody should get. When I'm exporting my videos from Final Cut Pro, it's always been incredibly slow to process a 4K video on YouTube. Like yeah. a while ago, it was a full day. So I, I had uploaded overnight so I could publish in the morning. I noticed yeah. a mistake in the morning and I'm like, oh crap, okay, well, I got to make this quick little change, export, totally fast, no problem. Okay, now upload it to YouTube pretty quick because I got decent internet. All right, now watch a process. And it took more than 10 hours. And yeah. that is infuriating. Like it's so Absolutely. frustrating. So anyway, what was what was your tip? I'll let you, I won't spoil it for you. Spoil yeah, yeah. Punch so, line, but what's your tip? I, I'm, I'm going to try and retrace the first person that told me. And I feel like it was Gary, Everyday Dad. We were talking about it. And he had just mentioned in passing, I was like, what he, cause he said his, his, his processing was so fast. I'm like, what, what are you using? I don't think he kind of realized what was happening. He might've, but it was like, try using Apple devices 4k. So when you get it to that export option in the share sheet, it's Apple devices and there's like Apple devices 4k. Right. So I tested it and I, to be honest, you probably experienced it now too. Every single time it actually is faster than the processing bar can even tell you. It'll say like 95% process. You click the link in your little, in your YouTube studio and you can see that it's already 4k. So it seems to be some sort of like M4V container, which is technically still an MP4. It's just Apple's nomenclature for the, for the end, but it still seems to be some sort of flavor of H.264 that YouTube just loves. And it's like literally like it's like honestly instant process. The most maybe I've waited a minute or two for it, but it doesn't matter the length of the video, short ones, long ones, doesn't matter the resolution. I've done four, three aspect ratio. I've done, you know, 4K. I've done 5K stuff even. And anytime I use that Apple devices, it just rips on the process. Yeah. One it thing I will notice. So yeah. 
it is so weird that it works. Like I don't understand. It is weird. Yeah, it's strange. I, I, I don't understand it, it either. It does yeah. not make any sense. And it does feel like Final Cut actually tweaked their typical H.264 export because this is what I was usually doing. And I think most people do because it, it gives you the highest quality file is you go to in the same list of like all the Apple ProRes 422 options in there. There's like is H.264. H264 yeah. No options. There's no flexibility. It's just like H.264 makes a pretty big, chunky file, but that's kind of good for archiving. It means you've got, you've got something there if you want to work with it again in the future. So that's still, that's still what I'll like deliver to clients and sometimes a ProRes version as well. But um, when you go to YouTube, like, yeah, this, the Apple devices one is just insanely fast. So that 10 hour upload that I was talking about a second ago is now, you know, like, like say five minutes, maybe yeah. 10 minutes. Yeah. It's awesome. Anytime I see people complaining about like, oh my, especially like for me, like when launches happen and I'm like really like, you know, 13 mini review, I, I put one up the day that I picked that phone up. I, w- I went at it. Right. And, you know, like I had pre-planned some things that I wanted to cover and I, I did the things that I wanted to test and everything. But like I gold myself to say, like, I'm going to pick this thing up at the Apple store at 8 a.m. And I want this video up today. And I and I was able to do it. And I did. I literally I shot it. I actually shot the whole thing on 13 mini too. But I did that Apple devices 4k and I knew I was never going to hit that roadblock of like, cause you imagine if I did all that work all that day and it's like, Oh, processing for six hours, seven hours, it doesn't go up till midnight. I would have been so upset about that. Right. And so for me, like having that in my back pocket, knowing that I can sort of like wing a video or put something up like in the moment on the fly. And like we said before, when I don't feel a barrier. Yeah. That Apple devices 4k is crazy. I just wish that there was like some more literature about why I would like to understand it so that I could like maybe, you know, whether it's to compressor or something like that, fine tweak that a little bit because like i do think it's a bit of a lower quality file than i'd probably be happier with anywhere else like i'm sure it's 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 totally fine for youtube but like you said i wouldn't like deliver a client project i wouldn't even use it for archival purposes it really is only for youtube because i I definitely think it's an 8-bit file and and i have seen some like banding some pixelation type stuff in moments where i probably didn't want it but the trade-off is that instant process and i think most people will never notice that thing is just something we know because we know the file so I, I think it's worth it. I just love to be able to tweak it at some point and, and sort of figure that out. It's same with Twitter. It's like, I really, I was talking to a Twitter engineer about video and I was just like, just tell us what will work best for you. You know what I mean? Like put something in an FAQ or whatever so we can like understand what format will actually provide the best results. Because like, why can I see like Warner Brothers or Marvel post like a trailer and it seems to look just fine on all of my devices. And then I'll post a video and it looks like a potato. So there's something weird going on there. Like why just be more open with the formats that you guys want to accept and be granular because the people that want to find out will will find it out. It's, it's kind of a weird thing with, with the backends yeah, even of the systems, it, right? Apple devices doesn't, that export option doesn't have the options that I want, but even so exactly, it's like yeah. the best hack that I've had in so long. Totally. Speaking totally. of compression though, I have a, a, just a quick little rant. Have you watched Wheel of Time at all yet? I haven't yet. I, heard, I saw you tweeting about though. Uh, I, I, it's been I, out for a while, right? I'm tweeting about been it like for every week. Yeah, every week it comes out, I'm tweeting about it because it drives me crazy. So... I don't, I'm not like, I'm not really into it. It's, it's, it's fine. Like it's a fine show, whatever. It's not, not the best, but, um, if anybody doesn't know, it's extremely expensive. It was like $80 million, one of the more expensive shows of all time. And, um, it looks awful. Uh, part of, part of this is, uh, you know, I think there were some creative decisions that didn't work that well. Uh, a lot of the wardrobe looks too new and like unworn for being in a, you know, ancient mythical age and you know there's just like little details about that but i could kind of look past it but for the most expensive show that i think amazon's done at this point it is so compressed like the macro blocking these big chunks of colors flying throughout the image are 
absolutely horrible. Like it, and I've had people, I, I had friends just message me like, uh, without me bringing it up, they're just, like a friend was just like, are you watching this? Have you seen this? Like, this is horrible. Um, yeah, Anya noticed it. And like, that's not typically, you know, she's just usually into the content and she's like, why does this look so bad? Uh, and as soon as I posted online, everybody else also was like, yeah, what, what is going on? So anyway, it's just that, that I, even Amazon is able to, you know, shit the bed at the final totally. goalpost where it's like, they're, they spend all this money. They, shot in all these incredible locations they put all this work into it and then the compression just kills it and i blame it on to me it looks like they added some heavy-handed uh grain like digital grain at the last yeah, step yeah, yeah. with some kind of strong sharpening and that that is just killing the compression algorithms because you can see that happen on, on yeah, youtube yeah. as well if you ever add uh, yeah, they don't play well. They don't po- play well in this together. Yeah, yeah totally. Does, if you yeah. add digital film grain, it, it, it'll look great in your NLE. When you're editing, you're like, wow, this looks like real film. And if it's the wrong size and the wrong randomness, the algorithm can really easily totally choke on it. And instead of seeing the grain, you just you only see a softer, more compressed image. Um, because the, the randomness is what is the most difficult for a compression algorithm to handle. Same with a moving shot is much more challenging than a static shot. So Amazon should know this. They are delivering <laughs> a ton of video every day. So I don't know. I, I, mean, a, I almost, yeah. There's a good example I usually tell people for like production quality and like what what a filmmaker can get away with. So if you ever, if you've, you've maybe already seen it, but, and some people love this movie, it's, it's sort of taken on a bit of a cult classic status, but Michael Mann's Miami Vice movie, the one with Colin Farrell and, and Jamie Foxx, it's worth so it's worth rewatching or watching just to see early days of digital. So it was the Thompson Viper was the camera at the time, which also shot Fincher's Zodiac. So only a few movies actually were used with that camera. And this is like this is like literally one of the first like Hollywood level digital cameras that people were using. Even the way the hard drive system worked, like emulated a film cartridge, right? It was like you got to replace the mag to change like the hard drive on it. So they used the Thompson Viper, and I think it was a Sony F nine hundred. F900, which is like an early like CCD Sony camera as well. So they have the two cameras on that on that entire movie. And you'll see two shots of like Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx on like a rooftop talking to each other. And it'll cut from like clean to the most grainy like ISO 6400 fixed pattern noise from like a, a 5D Mark II. You know what I mean? Like Like literally like some of the worst noise you've probably seen in footage in this like blockbuster at the time feature film and the thing with michael mann is like he goes story first what's the narrative what's happening and i'd I'd be really curious to know if how many audiences were actually like turned off by that in that film you know what i mean it's like we'll look at it from a technical standpoint like what the hell happened with the second camera but i was rewatching it recently on on blu-ray just to see it like in a higher fidelity and just seeing it jump around within the the same scenes like in two shots to go from clean to noisy to clean to noisy to like high iso low iso I just thought that was like so fascinating how like from a decision from a filmmaker to say, who cares? Like you could tell, I'm sure people on set were like, this looks awful, dude. Like you can't, what are we doing? Like we got to fix this. We got to clean it up and post, you know, we got to do all this, all that. And I'm sure he was just like, yeah, but what's it really, is it impacting the story? And I I don't think I could make an argument that it, that it was. And then you go, you know, fast forward to now and you got like Peter Jackson's get back with like the work that they did with that Beatles doc footage, like from what I've gone into like the rabbit hole on it, it was like 16 mil grainy as crap, looked awful, flat colors that they blew up to 35 mil originally, actually, like the original filmmakers blew it up 35 mil because they realized halfway through shooting, we probably should have thought shot 35 mil. So then they had this like 35 mil source footage that was actually from 16 mil. 
And when you watch, I don't know if you've seen it, but if you watch this on Disney Plus, it is gorgeous. It, it you you could yeah, think they shot it like maybe it in, the, in the in the 80s or 90s. If, yeah, you've, yeah. if you've gone down the rabbit hole, send me whatever links yeah. you saw because I want to know. More oh yeah, for sure I will for sure. I've, I've done done a good deep dive with that one. Visually, I had a bit of a feeling that they might have gone a little too aggressive with. Some I, I was just about to say the no, but the noise reduction it feels crazy. very yeah. flat. Totally. Yeah. It was like, there's some scenes where it's like, wow, this looks amazing. And then like throughout part two, part three, I was like, they kind of a little, well, I, I, not knowing the source footage, it might've been warranted. They kind of had to, but there's a certain level of like, like sort of the thesis of what I think of that Michael Mann example is just like, sometimes it's okay. You know, this is like a very Casey Neistat too, thing too. It's like, don't let perfect get in the way of being great with your footage. It's okay to be shaky. It's okay to be out of focus. If the story is still moving along and it's not really changing the audience's perception of that story you're trying to tell. Whereas I found like, you know, I could see if you were restoring Beatles footage, you're going to probably push it more than you would a, a feature or something like that. You know what I mean? Cause like, I think a lot of it was just like, we know people are sitting here just watching, you know, four guys in a room playing instruments. Let's make it try and look as good as possible. And I think creatively without a barrier, you could probably go overboard with it. Still thinking it looks good. Not realizing, you know, I bet you people would have been totally engaged with the story with even the original footage. Right. So yeah. it's just yeah, like a well, thought experiment. Would- right. Yeah. My main reaction was actually it more so than the grain. I didn't think about it that much, but what I really thought about is how good the film looks like what a vote totally. for film this is that like, Oh, absolutely. you know, this was shot on not the primary on the cheaper format of the day. Um, yep. a lot of things are out of focus. Like I feel like maybe their lens choice was a little weird. Like it's a lot of yeah, yeah. focus. And I'm, I'm guessing they but, were self-focusing too. Right. Cause it wasn't like they had yeah. ACs and stuff. They were like literally no, looking no, through no, a totally, viewfinder yeah. trying to figure that out. Yeah. But it looks so beautiful. There's so many shots where you're like, this is just gorgeous. And if this had been shot in the any time from the 80s to the early 2000s, like it would look like crap, like terrible. There's a, such a long period when things were shot on video and then bad digital and all of that, everything behind this, any behind the scenes stuff from that whole 30 years, 40 years looks like garbage. And this 16 millimeter film holds up so beautifully. Um, but I, I do have a production anecdote that I, I, I heard. I got to share this link. So it was super interesting about how they did the audio for it. That, oh, yeah, the AI um, stuff. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's brilliant because you're listening to it and you're like, wait, so th- they're just jamming, right? Like this is just rehearsals. They're only recording on one overhead boom. I know how that should sound. Like I'm sitting here in a, in a studio uh, with noise sound blankets around me and like it sounds pretty bad. Like it's actually very echoey in the space and I have a mic two inches from my, from my mouth. And still you can hear the construction happening down the hall. Like there are, it's so easy to have audio problems, but they're in a big open warehouse. And basically what they're able to do is take the mono track, which is just recorded to a quarter inch tape. Like, you know, at the time, basically this would be the, you know, like a portable record. It's like equivalent of recording your iPhone. Like it's the simplest recording device. Um, but you know, still like it's, since it's mono going to quarter inch, probably there's, you know, there's some fidelity there, but you only still have one, um, mic source. So you're not able to do any sort of mixing. You can't make the drums louder or guitar or vocals louder, whatever. I think it's just whatever the sound was in the room. So like you're saying the AI that, uh, Peter Jackson's team was able to develop, allowed them to really split those sources. And I've heard versions of that on YouTube where there's like isolated vocal tracks that are done digitally that sound terrible. Like usually they don't yeah. really work. They found a way to do it well, where you could just perfectly hear a clean version of say the guitar with the drums removed and the vocals removed. 
and it sounded good. So they did that to each audio track and then mastered as if they had a multi-track recording. So now, okay, we have a clean track of the drums, clean track of the guitar, clean track of the bass and vocals. We can master it as if we had a multi-track recording and, and really tweak them individually. And I'm just like, that's so brilliant. That's like, that would only be possible right now. That's a totally new, if we had watched this documentary five years ago, we would have been listening to mono, Fuzz. Yeah, mediocre, mono yeah, absolutely. yeah, like it wouldn't have been that good. Yeah, there's a, there is one thing, it, it kind of blew up on TikTok because a lot of people do their, their like remixes and stuff like that and uh, to songs and it's called, I think I'm gonna, I might botch the name, but it's L-A-L-A dot A-I. So it's like Lala dot A-I. And here's the funny thing. So I had a client ask for source audio from a video that we had done and i knew i had it on like my my hard drive system that i have somewhere and i was like oh god i don't know if i can feel like digging this thing up right now hopefully this client doesn't watch the this video (laughs) but i was going through and i was like you know what i remember there was that like isolation ai thing that was out there to like remove the music track from dialogue what would happen if i used it on a video and it was just like a talking head with with music underneath it and so i threw the video file through it and i was able to give them completely separated tracks the music and the dialogue completely separated all just by drag and dropping into that system. So whatever that Peter Jackson uses, some sort of emulation or development on stuff that has existed, but the way they've perfected it is insane. Like if I don't, I'm sure you saw that video where they, they actually show you the isolated tracks where it's like, here's just the drums. Here's just the bass. Here's just the guitar. No. So and I, it sounds I like they, I haven't seen it yet. Oh yes. Okay, I'll, I'll send it to you. So they, they, he show he shows like the mix and they show how they actually like separate it. And like, I was, I was listening with my AirPods max all the time, like through the TV. And I was like, it, it literally feels like they had a direct source mic up to like John Lennon's amplifier. Like it doesn't sound like they pulled it from that, which I actually think was honestly like a mono or stereo, mic, like not a, not a great microphone that was capturing all of that. Is like, is, is they're cutting back and forth. Sometimes they are playing multi-track recordings and it does not stand out to me when it's the single microphone. No, you can't tell. Yeah. You never, you literally never know. They both sound very, they both sound great. (laughs) Like like really great. It's crazy. Have you ever seen Did you see his world war one? uh documentary too like that one's i actually that i one's actually wild, started too. watching it and, and and didn't finish it it i think yeah yeah I, I, the tech of it the tech of it was really interesting to me and like the yeah yeah the adr for me was really interesting how like they added the the audio after i thought was kind of cool so like silent footage i think that was that was really interesting to me like how they basically like they filled in the gaps for the sound that they didn't even have uh, at the source which i thought was really interesting um yeah it's cool that he's doing like that's that's peter jackson late in his career like having fun right like you do Lord of the Rings and God knows King Kong and stuff. And now you can sit back and be like, let's just do a, let's remaster let's the Beatles. Like, that, that's, that's, that to yeah. me is so interesting as a filmmaker. Yeah. No. Oh man. I'm so like, I have so much Beatles in my head right now because of that. Like, it, it, oh, yeah, totally. it's so long. There's some songs I don't so ever want to hear again, but yeah. yeah <laughs> but I hear like, I, I dig a I pony like one more they, time. I'm going to lose it. <laughs> they let it, they let you hear multiple takes as well. Cause I feel like if this was yeah. edited to be a traditional two and a half hour piece, you would literally hear each song once. You'd ne- you'd never hear a play through. No, twice. you wouldn't. Yeah, you wouldn't get that 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 train of like yeah. seeing the inception of like Paul McCartney come up with "Get Back" to the final performance of the, the actual still, song within the span of like two weeks. Best moment. I love yeah, that. I sure. love that moment though, where you just see it develop like in real time in a in one or two. I mean, it it can be it's a viral clip because it happens in the length of a you know Twitter video that you can see the totally. song yeah. basically get written. <laughs> yes, yeah. man. So good. Um, that, and then I've also been very down a uh, Dave Grohl rabbit hole lately because I was reading his, his oh, nice. biographies. So um, I just love, I mean, it's funny because like 
Foo Fighters music, it's not, it's, they're not my favorite band in the world, but I just love Dave Grohl. Like, and, Nirva- and Nirvana might great. be my favorite band in the world. So, like, put he's those done, together. He did, like, documentary about, like, he did a documentary about, like, dads in, in, in like, rock. I can't remember what it's called. But it was, like, dads yeah. in the music industry, essentially. He did, like, that documentary. I thought that was great. Like, he's another guy. Like, yeah, he just did one. With, just, he did one with his yeah. mom. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah. Cradle to Stage. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, he's, awesome. like, just, like, <laughs> all about, like, half of the book is about his family. Like, just so much, like, gratitude for reaching the place that he has and so much humility about how much everybody else contributed to his career. And it's, like, even if this is um, a show, like, even if it's not, really him maybe he's a egomaniac and deep down he doesn't believe any of this and he actually is super selfish it it almost doesn't matter because i'm like i just wish more celebrities would put this face on like this is this is the right way to act in public is like you know show just we anybody that has reached any sort of success by other people appreciating their work owes it to that community and be that. So the only right response is, is hum, humility and gratitude. And like, I just, I loved hearing like a whole audiobook that was just full of that emotion. So it was great. That's awesome. That's great. If you want something but, else to uh, check out, cause you were talking about, uh, yeah, if you want some yeah. check out with 16 mil Spencer is shot on 16 mil and it's gorgeous. The one about cool. Princess Diana, I, Kristen Stewart plays Princess Diana. But I, I, I saw clips from it's it. some of the nicest 16 mil. Yeah. It's some of the nicest 16 mil I've ever seen put on film on film like it's it's absolutely well, gorgeous. i, I, I could have just watched make sure there's an hour insurance. of her of her driving in her like porsche through the countryside it was just like i saw it in theaters at tiff and i was like this is like sick look i i'm not i'm not totally into film uh for photography i went through a phase and i had my whole film phase but my god there is something to be said about like real 16 mil and 35 millimeter film that looks it just it's unparalleled as good as emulation has got you can go down the steve yudlin path of like we can emulate everything. And I agree to an extent we actually can emulate most stuff, but there's a feel Spencer was really one of the movies that I watched again. I actually watched it again recently at home where I was like, I know we can emulate close to this, but it's not, it's just not quite mm-hmm. as good as the real thing. That, that movie, when before you watch you go, it, like you uh, couldn't, you really couldn't pull this off digitally. Before you go, what's your favorite film emulation currently? Uh, my favorite one is called Filmbox. If you haven't heard of it, it's only for Resolve, unfortunately. So I do have to round trip through Resolve, and it is very just downloaded expensive it too. A week ago, um, what's that? I just downloaded it a week ago. Oh, nice! And they also have another one called Scatter, which is uh, like a ProMist emulation. Which so I have a friend who's a DIT, and he works on like Amazon Prime shows and stuff like that. And he told me about it originally. He's like the guys behind this are like top tier like the emulation they're using for mist. He's like, nobody's using mist filters anymore. We're all doing it in post. I'm like, there's no way. How could it be as good as actually putting like a promise or a dream filter on? And like, so scatter is one that's unreal. It like emulates like promise quarter, you know, one eighth, half, all the, all the strengths of like a mist, but then film box is nuts. Like the control and just the emulation that they have is like halation too. It'll add like the little slight red and pink glow around light sources and stuff. It's really, really good. I think I personally think it's worth every penny of it if you're really into getting that that film emulation look. But it's still only as good as your source footage. You, you still got to shoot in a way that benefits that sort of emulation. And I think that's some even a testament to like Spencer. It's like the film's doing a lot of work, but production design's doing ninety percent of it. You know what I mean? It's the colors that are in the frame that are making that film work so well. And a lot of people will just like film a shot like this. And throw an emulation on it and be like, why doesn't it, why doesn't this look good? This doesn't look like right. I thought it was going to look. It's like because you're not wearing the tones and the colors and the things that you need in that frame to really make like Kodachrome and Kodak, you know, 500T, whatever 50D 
look the way you want it to look, right? And it's like, I always joke, it's like, we're always like putting LUTs on A-roll and we're wearing like, you know, I put a black t-shirt. I'm like, why doesn't this LUT make my A-roll look proper? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, oh, maybe I should wear a colorful shirt or something and put some set design. And like, all of a sudden, okay, it doesn't matter what LUT I use. It looks fine in camera, right? That is great. The emulation is great, but you really got to start. It's got to look good in the frame on the camera first, right? Yeah. No, I'm completely behind that. And, and, and yeah, also just to, to give another vote to Filmbox, I, I still only have the free version. I didn't pay for it yet. But it's doing things that I just was so confused why other emulation wasn't doing. And Halation is the biggest one by far. Because, you know, like Film Convert has been around for a while now, like five or and six years. And I use it a lot. I used to use it a lot. Yeah, a for lot sure. of people. Yeah. But it just doesn't get anywhere near the, it, do, it just never does actually look like film to me. It like gives some of the qualities. But halation is such a huge element of like, it is always there on real film in like, you, you can always see it when, when the contrast is right, basically like high contrast edges. Um, it, it's guaranteed to appear if it's shot on film. And the fact that it was never there in all this other film emulation software is like, well, then it's obviously not film. Um, then also the way that there's some stuff is just so subtle. Like it's, it's, I, I, it's hard for me to even see and identify why it works when it does, but like the way that gate weave looks and oh yeah totally like yeah it's so and the way that like color having color in the highlights it's so hard to pull that off in the appropriate way because i there's nothing i like less than just seeing like pure yellow highlights when they clearly would be white like i, I just yeah, don't yeah. like that approach at all like i don't want a strong tone in what is obviously a true white like a specular highlight for example if it's blown i sure have something in the room behind me that's like if you have something clipping that can't be a color because if it's clipping, it's supposed to be in some version of white. Um, So there really needs to be this approach of like just hitting the highest highlights and then you still let those, the specular highlights go white. Um, No, it's it's gorgeous. The grain is really nice too. Everything about it is really nice. I just wish they would have a final cut option. I just, I would love to just keep it all in one, in one NLE and not have to round trip so much to resolve for it. But when I do, it's it's gorgeous and, it, and, it, and honestly it's accepted pretty much any footage that i've thrown it with if, if you have a good log camera whether it's you know panasonic sony canon whatever it does a really good job of figuring out how it's supposed to look and matching like i also use it as like a camera matching software because it's like i can throw pocket 4k you know black magic film at it and then also vlog from a panasonic and because it knows the source footage and it applies that emulation directly to that that source footage they match so incredibly well. So it works almost like Cinematch in a way too. If you just need to like make things look the same, it does, it does a really good job. Nice. Yeah, no, I love it. But Patrick, thanks again for coming on. Um, Thank you for having me, man. Always a pleasure. I got your, I I always forget your actual Twitter handle. So if people are looking for you, it's Yeah, same same as YouTube. So so letter I, letter M, Patrick T. So I'm Patrick T. That's it. Yeah, everywhere, everywhere. Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, uh, TikTok, I guess, yeah. (laughs) Everywhere. All right. See you next time. Everywhere. All right. Cheers.